meetings, no Sunday meetings. It was always a weekday meeting and uh, often off for the summer, three months off. <laughs> Which, you know, has some appeal, right? Um, um, service activities. We cannot even begin to, to uh, talk about the kinds of, of service activities because they were so varied according to the, the needs of the time. So we have this, uh, in the 1850s, sewing clothing for uh, Native American women and children, helping the immigrants. I'm sure you've heard uh, the Lucy Meserve Smith story about going from house to house to collect uh, quilts for those who were coming in with the, the hand carts. Um, in the, uh, when Relief Society really gets going in the 1860s, we have a lot of emphasis on health because there's so much uh, sickness. So we have sisters going to medical school. The Relief Society has midwifery classes and uh, builds the first Latter-day Saint Hospital, the Deseret Hospital. Maybe some of you have seen the replica of that up at the, this is the place, park. Um, women are sponsoring kindergartens. Uh, they uh, have their own newspaper. They uh, are storing grain. Brigham Young asked them to store grain, so they're building granaries. They have cooperative stores. The 60s and 70s and 80s are just a, a flurry of economic activities. Uh, later, we see things like a big emphasis on child and maternal health care, sponsoring clinics for uh, children, uh, trying to evaluate the health of children. Uh, the, the Cottonwood Maternity Hospital came out of this period. Uh, also a, a maternity hospital in Snowflake, Arizona. Uh, the Relief Society introduced social services into the church, first social service training, and its department of social services that carried out adoptions, uh, youth uh, guidance for uh, delinquent youth, Indian student placement, had an employment bureau. All of that ran from uh, 1918 until 1969 when it became Unified Social Services. Uh, so at the local level, lots of different things. During the Depression, a lot of training to work with families in need, uh, just huge varieties of activities. And again, where, where was there an age 18 where you could join Relief Society? That really became part of the Relief Society program in the 1970s. You know, it's interesting. There have been some periods of time when it's uh, Relief Society membership has really lagged. One of those was at the end of this uh, period of economic activity as economics changed. And Relief Society women were growing older. And the Young Ladies Mutual Improvement Association had been established. And a lot of those young ladies were young married women. And what they found is they couldn't get the young women to leave young women. They'd be in young women with three or four children and still, still unwilling <laughs> to join Relief Society. So they had, to, they had to come up with these mother's classes in the early 1900s and then a curriculum that was more appealing to young, young mothers. Um, can you speak about the visiting committee and why it was started, why visiting teaching is still important today? I mentioned that, that uh, that visiting committee became uh, the visiting teachers. I think it was Eliza R. Snow who took those minutes and said, look, Joseph said we could appoint teachers. 
and we're going to appoint teachers like the men have teachers. And in those days, the men had adult, the, the teachers weren't 14 years old, they were adult men, and they went from house to house. So she said, ours are going to be teachers. We're going to have a visiting committee of teachers. And they became the visiting teachers. Um, they were teachers in that they were going from house to house, like block teaching. Uh, actually, there wasn't a visiting teaching message until after they stopped collecting money. Once they stopped collecting money, they had to have something to do, so they gave a message. And uh, it's interesting, Belle Spafford talked about that, and she said uh, that Louise Y. Robison, who was in charge of Relief Society during the 30s, said that's the death knell. Taking away that collecting funds is the death knell of visiting teaching. And uh, Belle Spafford said, I felt like, no, this is just the beginning. Women don't like to go from house to house asking for money. They're going to they're gonna love going and visiting with their sisters and giving a message. Um, I would like your thoughts on Emma being unable to accept polygamy, her immediate separation from the body of the church on Joseph's death, and how she was treated by Brigham Young and others. Um, we've talked a little bit about that. Uh, Yes, Emma did accept polygamy briefly, but she was, she was just conflicted in her heart about it. And I think all of us can understand it, it's maybe different to have uh, someone who is a church leader introduce that principle than it is to have your own husband introduce it. It was very, it was very painful for her. Uh, but I think we also need to recognize it was painful for everyone. Uh, John Taylor talked about it later and said, you know, Joseph taught us members of the 12 plural marriage, and we just said to him, frankly, we do not want to do this. We're not interested. Do not ask us to do this. And uh, as Joseph bore his, his witness, and they got their own witness that this was of God, they entered into plural marriage. And I think that was true for women as well. Um, the women who became wives, the men who, who uh, married additional wives had to have their own personal witness of this. And I think those are some very touching stories. Um, but Emma, Emma was perpetually conflicted about it as were other women. We have other people uh, dropping out over this issue all through the century. Um, and, and now we have w people dropping out over because they find out about it. Uh, <laughs> um, so it, this is a, a difficult uh, question. I don't know that I have an answer. I think Emma was a remarkable woman and a good woman, and her sisters felt that. Um, what fascinates you the most about Eliza R. Snow? What would she say to us today? What a great question. You know, I think what fascinates me most about Eliza R. Snow is that she is so complex. Um, she, she is a talented intellectual, uh, a bright woman uh, who speculates theologically. Uh, she is a totally loyal member of the church. She didn't, she, she looked into the church for four years before she joined. And once she made that decision, that was that. Uh, and she, she uh, kept with it. She had a keen sense of the order of the priesthood, just such a keen sense, and she felt part of it. She felt the power in being connected to it. 
So what you see in her counsel to women is, okay, I know your bishop disagrees with you on this. Um, you see things differently, but you will be blessed if you will, if you will abide by his counsel because power comes from acting within that order. Nobody was more uh, enthusiastic about women's innovation and initiative and taking responsibility and ministering, but she also was adamant about working within that order, and I think that's, um, that's important for us to understand today. I think some women would see her as far too uh, conservative in that respect. I think there were men and women in her own time who saw her as too pushy. So maybe she got it about right. <laughs> Answer any or all. How do we integrate women's voices into our everyday discourses? I, I would just say, quote them. Focus on uh, women in the scriptures. Ponder them. Ponder the roles of those women in the New Testament. Study the words of women. This new book, uh, published through the Church Historians Press at the pulpit, has remarkable discourses by Latter-day Saint women. And uh, I, I know that that is eventually going to be up online if you don't want to get the hard copy. Uh, quote our women from their speeches in general conference at BYU Women's Conference. Be familiar with their words. And don't leave the room when the sisters come on to speak at general conference. Stay there, listen to what they have to say. and and quote them in your lessons. Um, what official titles did women hold uh, as they were to be appointed as deacons, teachers, etc.? I think teachers is the only, is the, is the only title that has, has stuck other than uh, president and, and first counselor and second counselor and, and secretary. The 15th ward in Salt Lake tried for a while to have deaconesses uh, as well as teachers. Um, and uh, they did what the deacons did. What, what, um, this is the day before the deacons passed the sacrament. What did the deacons used to do? They set up the room for meetings. So that's what the sisters deaconesses did. They were in charge of setting up the room. There you go, Virgin. <laughs> um, was Heavenly Mother mentioned in Eliza R. Snow's minutes? No, we don't have, uh, what we don't have is any sermon of Joseph Smith talking about Heavenly Mother, but we have everybody in Nauvoo talking about him talking about it. So we know he talked about it, but we don't, we don't actually have a, a sermon where he talks about it. Does the sealing power belong to women, mothers, in a temple divorce? Somebody asked me that privately. Does the sealing power belong to women in a temple divorce, and I think what she means are the, the did meant where the children continue to be sealed to the mother. And I have to say, in terms of temple sealings and divorces, I am just not. I, I am not. Uh, I don't have the knowledge uh, to answer those questions. And, and oh, did Emma push Eliza down the stairs when Eliza was pregnant? Um, there, there just is not historical evidence for that. Conflict between the two women, there probably is some evidence for, but uh, pushing down the stairs or the fact that Eliza was pregnant, I'd, I'd have no evidence for. Actually, she was 38 years old when she was sealed to Joseph Smith and 40 when she was sealed to Brigham Young. So uh, she may well have been past the age of childbearing, but I, I have no evidence in anything historically that she was pregnant. 
what was the reaction of the women in Nauvoo to the organization of the Relief Society and the endowment? I'm glad somebody asked that because I forgot to read this amazing quote from uh, Mercy Fielding Thompson. I have been present at the meetings of the Relief Society and heard him give directions and counsels to the sisters calculated to inspire them to efforts which would lead to celestial glory and exaltation and oh how my heart rejoiced about listening to Joseph Smith give those sermons we talked about. Uh, women, women were excited about Relief Society. They, they, a thousand members, over a thousand members in Nauvoo. They, uh, they were excited. And, and there are, we have, uh, we have some special mentions of receiving that endowment from the Nauvoo Temple. Uh, what percentage of the women in Nauvoo were members of Relief Society? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I would say over a thousand members, maybe 1,200 members. Um, 11,000 people in Nauvoo is the population. How many of those were women and children? I don't know. So, what, maybe 20% of the women, 25% of the women? It was, it was a small number, and membership in Relief Society continued to be small uh, until everyone was made a member. Um, what is your favorite attribute or lesson you have learned from Emma Smith? Honesty, honesty. Emma Smith tells those sisters, we must deal frankly with each other. She, she was a woman who expressed herself and her opinions and moved forward. Uh, you know, she was a great business partner of Joseph's and uh, a very skilled, a skilled woman and obviously a charismatic leader with a gift of healing. She, she was the first woman to uh, heal the sick and relief society by the laying on of hands. That's what brought up the question. She, so she, she was gifted in healing and ministering, um, a gifted administrator, a gifted uh, businesswoman. But I am, I am really drawn to her statements about dealing frankly with one another. And I think that kind of authenticity enhances relief society whenever it's present. Why is there a gap between Emma Smith's Relief Society presidency in Nauvoo and the next presidency in Salt Lake? I think I explained that a little. The controversy over plural marriage, Brigham Young's decision to disband the Relief Society and, and say, I don't want women meeting until I call them to meet, uh, which he did in 54 Relief Society function briefly till the Utah War and again in, uh, in uh, 67. And we've tried to cover that gap uh, in this Relief Society history. So, uh, why did Brigham Young take, yep, take so long to reestablish the Relief Society in Salt Lake Valley? You know, I I, I, I'm going to uh, just say, let's give Brigham Young credit for growing a lot. I, I mean, uh, let's think of the men we know who are, who are 30 or 40 years of age and, and, and I don't know, I, my husband's changed a lot in the last 40 years. I, and I don't know, maybe I helped him. I hope I helped him. Uh, and Brigham Young had all those wives to help him. I think he, you know, he, he, changed, he changed a lot. He was, he was not sympathetic to women in Nauvoo. His words are harsh. His words in early Utah are harsh. But he, he came to understand how important women could be 
uh, in terms of building the kingdom. And by 1867, 1868, he wants them there. He wants them working. He'll give them a little assignment and off they go. They, uh, they had so much pent up energy. There is, you, you can just feel the, the vibration and the excitement when Relief Society is reestablished in 1867. They just uh, go for it in spades and, and honor him, respect him, appreciate his support for women. So uh, he had his own reasons. Uh, there, were, there was lots of dissension in the church. We talk about the majority of church members following Brigham Young, but what do we mean by that? 50%, we, the church was cut in half in Nauvoo, and it continued to lose members uh, across the plains in early Utah. He had a lot to worry about, he, and he had all these immigrants coming in a lot to put in order. Uh, I have a, a great witness of Joseph Smith as a prophet, and I have a great witness of Brigham Young as a prophet. I, I love them both, and I've probably studied Brigham Young more and, and have a great affection for him in spite, of his, in spite of his quirks and in spite of his sometimes harsh rhetoric. We'll end it there. Thank you so much for coming. <laughs>